Hi comrades, we'd like to open this episode by paying tribute to a lifelong revolutionary and Leon Trotsky's grandson, Sieva Volkov, also known as Esteban, who sadly passed away at the age of 97 in Mexico on the 16th of June. We've published a note on Marxist.com from our editor, Alan Woods, who was a close friend of Volkov's for over 30 years. I'll put a link in the description of this episode and we encourage you all to read it. With Volkov's passing, we've lost the last living link to one of history's outstanding revolutionaries, Trotsky, who played a leading role in the Russian Revolution, the greatest event in human history, and courageously defended the clean banner of Marxism against the murderous crimes of Stalinism. Trotsky's struggle came with great personal costs, including his own murder in 1940 by a GPU agent at his home in Coyoacán, Mexico, where he'd been living in exile. Volkov, who was also in Coyoacán at the time of Trotsky's death, and was actually wounded in a previous assassination attempt, lost much of his family to Stalin's agents. He dedicated his adult life to preserving and defending his grandfather's legacy, establishing the Trotsky House Museum in Coyoacán for the purpose. Comrades of the IMT had the privilege of listening to Volkov speak at a number of our events over the years, and despite his advanced age and the terrible tragedies of his life, his addresses were always full of great wisdom, wit, and optimism. We in the IMT pledge to continue the struggle to which Volkov and his grandfather committed their lives, upholding the real traditions of Marxism and Bolshevism, and fighting for the revolutionary liberation of humanity. Once more, please read Alan's tribute on Marxist.com. Now, let's continue with the episode. Welcome to International Marxist Radio. The official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency. Marxist.com Join us every single week for Marxist news, theory, and analysis. Hello and welcome to International Marxist Radio, where we're very happy to welcome once again Josh Holroyd, who is a writer and editor for Marxist.com. Josh, thank you for joining us once more. Thank you very much, Joe. It's great to be back. The last time we had you on, we were talking about Marx and Engels' early political career and how Marx became a Marxist. I'll put a link to that episode in the description for this one. And we ended pretty much with the publication of the Communist Manifesto, which came out literally exactly, as far as I'm aware, on the eve of the February Revolution in France, 1848, which was part of a massive tidal wave of revolution that swept the whole of the European continent and which had profound effects on Marx and Engels' outlook and ideas, taught them many lessons. So I guess you could say that this episode is a direct sequel to the previous one. We're going to be talking about what Marx and Engels got up to during the revolutionary wave of 1848 and its aftermath, the lessons they drew from it. And we're going to start pretty much exactly where we left off. So again, if you haven't heard that episode, go back and have a listen. Otherwise, you might be a bit lost. So... Uh, set the scene for us, Josh. Marx and Engels have just published this bombshell manifesto, which pretty much literally exactly anticipates the events that are about to hit Europe. Um, 
And at this point, Marx and Engels have an organization, the Communist League. You explained previously how that was set up. How do they react to the uprising of the French masses? Well, the, the Engels' immediate response, at least his immediate published response, literally the first words of an article entitled Revolution in Paris are, the year 1848 is beginning well. So I, it probably won't be a surprise to hear that they welcomed the revolution. Um, I suppose one detail to mention is the revolutionary wave of 1848 begins a little bit earlier in, in Italy, first with a, uh, a, a boycott by the masses in Milan against Austrian rule, and later with an uprising on the island of Sicily against Bourbon rule in the Kingdom of Naples. But of course, the absolute centre of this revolutionary wave that would sweep the whole of Europe takes place, is to be found, sorry, in France and in Paris in particular. And so the February Revolution in Paris, which you write, it, it, it breaks out a day or two after the publication of the German, the original German text of the Communist Manifesto. Unfortunately, the, the French a translation doesn't come out until a couple of months after, but the Communist Manifesto is published uh, a day or two before the outbreak of the insurrection, the, the uprising in Paris. Um, there's a huge amount of facts and details about this revolutionary way that we could go into. You might have to restrain me at sometimes. I don't want to get too bogged down. I'll do my best. <laughs> because I think it would be great to focus how Marx and Engels navigate these events and the lessons they drew. Because one thing, one slight itch I had after our last episode, it was a, a necessary evil, but finishing in the Communist Manifesto makes a huge amount of sense. But it's precisely their involvement in the events of 1848 that develops even more fully the Marxism, particularly the political program of Marx and Engels. So it'd be great mm. to, to revisit those ideas. But anyway, they welcomed the revolution. And in the same article where Engels says the year 1848 is starting well, he finishes the article saying this the, the victory, he says, honour to the workers of Paris. He recognises that the uprising in February uh, 1848 in Paris had been led by the working class, actually. Just very briefly, the way that it took place is the, the masses actually start, um, and by the masses I'm referring to, working people, uh, artisans, shopkeepers, the kind of the, the, the poor um, majority mm. of Paris, start assembling in uh, various squares and they... Stay there. I mean, it reminds me a bit of the, the revolution in Egypt with the occupation of, uh, of Tahrir Square. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen this many, many times. A bit like the, bit like the revolutionary city in Khartoum during the Sudanese revolution as well. Exactly. This seems to be, a, a mod understandably, a model that people follow. And people keep pouring in um, and won't go. And they, the, the authorities try to disperse them. Um, and all that does, that, all that succeeds in doing is spreading the movement around the city. So the people mm. that have just been pushed out of the main squares are now being pushed around the neighborhoods of Paris. Right. Um, the, uh, the, the king, Louis-Philippe, uh, uh, eventually agrees to dismiss his main minister, Guizot, who's a conservative minister. Um, but that only encourages the masses. And you see this in revolutionary situations. Repression only angers the masses and concessions only encourage the masses. Mm. It's like you're trying to stem the tide, but the tide is too powerful. You, in this uh, analogy, being the king himself. And so in response to this concession, the workers um, march in a demonstration holding a red flag to uh, the Ministry of the Interior and on to Guizot's residence. At that point, they're met by a line of infantry. Mm. The infantry opens fire, kills, uh, I think, more than 40 people. And as a result of that act of repression, the dead are carried onto the shoulders of these protesting workers, marched around the city. And as a result, by the end of that evening, you have 1,500 barricades installed across the whole of the city of Paris. Now, in addition to the army, 
you have this force called the National Guard that I'd already, um, I'd already mentioned. The authorities call out the National Guard. Some of the units don't turn up at all. And some of the units that do turn up are actually chanting reform, reform. In other words, they support the revolutionary movement. Mm. At this point, the, uh, the, the, the deputies in the parliament, the MPs and the ruling class panic. They try to um, get the king to abdicate in favor of his grandson. And the, the, the king does, in fact, abdicate in favor of his grandson. An analogy can be drawn here with the February Revolution in Russia in 1917, where the, the bourgeois position succeeded in persuading the, the Tsar to abdicate. But in order to maintain the regime, this was going to be a face-changing uh, uh, exercise. Yeah. And actually, they succeed in getting the agreement of the deputies. And they're there, stood in Parliament, announcing this abdication and this change, thinking this is going to save the day. And at the very moment they're doing that, hundreds, if not thousands, of armed workers storm the assembly building, pour into the assembly building and effectively cancel it by, the by their own power, the power of the masses. Instead, they read out a list of individuals who are going to form a provisional government and literally pick up these individuals. And incidentally, these individuals are already known Republicans, famous journalists from publications like The National and The Reform. I think we mentioned those in the last episode. And they literally pick up these individuals, hoist them onto their shoulders and carry them off to the Hotel de Ville, the town hall, which has a significance going back to the great French Revolution. Now, the reason why this is directly relevant is clearly indirectly relevant to what Marx and Engels were getting up to. But it's directly relevant to Marx in his life because that revolution ends up putting into the government somebody called Ferdinand Flusson. Mm -hmm. Now, Ferdinand Flusson was an editor of the reform paper. He was a, a radical Republican, um, more inclined to adopt social demands as well as democratic demands, but he was not a communist. Um, he was one of these individuals who were catapulted into power as a result of the, the rising of the masses. And so as a result of this revolution, which was opposed by the bourgeoisie, it was opposed by the capitalist class from the very beginning, but at the same time, it installs a government into power which is, we would, in Marxist terms, we would call it bourgeois republican. This was not a workers' government. They never set out to overthrow the capitalist system. Um, they wanted to introduce some social reforms, but really their main task was institution of um, universal suffrage, a constituent assembly. In other words, this is what Marx himself would describe as a bourgeois revolution, a revolution the tasks of which were the establishment of some form of bourgeois democratic regime, which, if anything, actually enhances the political power of the bourgeoisie. And yet the contradiction at the heart of this revolution was it was carried out, it was spearheaded and carried out pretty much at every stage by the working class. It was a, po it was a bourgeois revolution opposed by the bourgeoisie and carried out by the working class. Trotsky identified something similar in February 1917 and he called it the paradox of February. And I would say that you have a similar paradox here in France. But as a result of this paradox, you have a, a, a provisional government which is to the left, shall we say. And has made, has, certain individuals in that government have got, to an extent, friendly relations with uh, Marx and Engels from back in the day before they were in power. As a result, Flosson um, invites Marx to come to Paris. Invites Marx personally. Yeah, writes a letter to Marx to invite him to Paris, which is lucky because at that exact moment, Marx is being evicted by the, uh, the Belgian authorities who've decided that the presence of this revolutionary um, was a bit too much for their taste. They were worried about his influence um, there. Well, especially with the revolution going on next door. Exactly, exactly. Um, in addition, the response of the Communist League as an organization to the outbreak of the revolution in France is they immediately look to Germany. And they, they decide that it's necessary to move the headquarters from London to first to Brussels and then to Paris. Can I just pause you for a second? Why exactly, 
was the Communist League looking at Germany because they were a largely German organization? Because you made that point in the previous episode. Yes, that's right. Uh, so the Communist League was, they, they were certainly internationalist in outlook. Of course, Workers of the World Unite was their slogan. But they were made up overwhelmingly of German workers. And their aim at the outbreak of the revolution in France was to start the revolution in Germany. Because at this point, the German revolution hasn't actually taken place. Right. And so they convene in Paris. Marx is given powers to basically build a new centre in Paris. Because, of course, they don't know how long they're going to be waiting until the revolution breaks out. That's one thing uh, to bear in mind. In the end, they didn't have to very, wait very long. Um, and immediately, the first debate, the first political question they come up against is how to spread the revolution. Right. And an interesting debate breaks out between uh, activists and workers who want to form a, an armed battalion and cross over into Germany and carry the revolution by force. And this this faction, for want of a better word, is backed by none other than Mikhail Bakunin, mm -hmm. who, who Marx encounters many other times in his life. This is Bakunin, the anarchist. That's correct, yeah. So he's in favor of um, basically carrying on a military struggle. Interestingly, the French government, the provisional government that I just mentioned, encouraged them and said that they would pay to send these several, several hundred armed Germans across the border into Germany. Engels thinks that that's because they wanted to get rid of these German revolutionaries by sending yeah, them. Yeah, off you go, lads. Good luck. <laughs> exactly, yeah. We'll pay your train fare. And Marx and Engels, they, they argue against this. They set up a, a, a German workers' club in Paris. This is a, I have to, I, I can't go into this, but this is a time when the French working class was setting up hundreds and hundreds of clubs and worker societies because of the new legal conditions as a result of the re revolution. And these clubs were like embryonic revolutionary parties, workers' assemblies. It was an incredible development. But in the context of all this, and incidentally, some of the individuals that were named in the last episode on this theme, people like August Blanqui, he's released from prison. Proudhon starts releasing a, a, a newspaper. Cabe, the utopian, has this very popular club with thousands of workers attending where he's preparing them for their first, the foundation of their first colony in the United States. So this is a seething cauldron of revolutionary activity. And in that, in the context of that cauldron, Marx and Engels set up a, a German workers club to debate the key questions of the time. The first of which is, should we be arming ourselves and going over to Germany? Marx and Engels argue, no, that would not work. That would be an adventure which would actually serve to strengthen the authorities at the other side of the border. Trying to carry on a revolution without the masses by force of arms would strengthen the security apparatus, to use kind of modern terminology, in Germany. And if anything, actually just weaken the revolutionary forces by getting themselves killed. And Lenin goes on to make the exact same point some years later in relation to Narodnism in Russia. Yeah, I think that there is, a, there is an analogy to be drawn. I think that the, the perspective of the German workers who wanted to go over was not quite so much propaganda of the deed and more fantasizing a little bit about a revolutionary war. And it, it raises an interesting question that perhaps we can't go into detail here about the relationship between Marxists and the armed struggle. We're certainly not pacifists, and Marx was not, as, as will become clear when we discuss other events in this year, Marx was certainly not a pacifist, and he was definitely not against German workers holding arms. In fact, he insisted on the necessity of the German workers being armed. Mm -hmm. But what he was extremely sceptical about was this idea of, it's similar to the Blancist idea of a small conspiracy being able to start the revolution by mounting effectively just a, a surprise seizure of power. Mm -hmm. He just did not think that 100 armed workers marching over the border, funded by French money, was actually going to start the revolution. He, he, obviously, he clearly saw that the German revolution was going to be, yes, it was going to be linked to and influenced by foreign developments, but ultimately it's a product of the contradictions and classes within Germany. Mm -hmm. So what he and Engels put forward the idea of was 
um, not just sitting on the sidelines and waiting, sending those workers in to do political work rather than basically giving them weapons and having them march over the border. Right. Try to smuggle them in, basically. So sending them over, yes, but not so much with rifles in their hands as much as political agitation and propaganda and ideas. Exactly, the Communist Manifesto, <laughs> to, to name one in particular. But in, in addition to the Communist Manifesto, they draft this, this newly constituted centre, the Central Committee in Paris, that's set up by Marx and Engels comes over as well, along with other um, leading members of the Communist League, people like Joseph Moll, Karl Schapper. They draft uh, a document called uh, Demands of the German Communist Party. This was to be their specific manifesto. If their Communist Manifesto is their general man manifesto to the world proletariat, focusing in particular on England, um, they draft a new set of demands which are closely linked to but not identical to the demands in the Communist Manifesto, which is to serve as their, their programmatic document in Germany. And this document, I'm not going to list all the demands in, in one go, but it, importantly, it does not call for the expropriation of the entire capitalist class. What they call for is the eradication of any of the last vestiges of feudalism. You had elements of serfdom in, in Germany and, and Austria at that time. It calls, they call for the establishment of a state bank issuing paper currency. Neither of those things are antithetical to bourgeois demand. We would call those bourgeois democratic demands. In addition, universal suffrage. They took the, the Chartist demands about universal suffrage over the age of 21, a payment for MPs so that you didn't have to be you know, a wealthy man of means in order to sit in parliament. Um, so a number of democratic and, and frankly bourgeois demands. But in addition to that, ones that went, in reality, went beyond what the bourgeoisie itself would tolerate. Mm -hmm. um, so expropriating the old feudal estates and rather than selling them off to private owners, actually running them as collectivized state-owned farms, for instance. Maybe I'm stretching this, but this sounds a little bit, a little bit like what we might today call a transitional program. Well, it's very interesting you use that expression. They don't use that expression, but later on, so not, not at this time, but later on, Marx comments that the role of the revolutionary workers party, that's not a name, that's just describing the force we're talking about. In other words, an independent working class party should be to stretch the bourgeois democratic goals of the movement to their logical conclusion beyond the point that the Democrats themselves would be prepared to go. We briefly talked about Marx's philosophy, but this is Marx's philosophy in action mm -hmm. um, because there is, there's a dialectical quality to this. That, and he insists throughout 1848, he keeps on saying that you can't just decree a unified republic. Sorry, one, I should mention probably the first demand in this entire program is that Germany should become a unified republic. Right, because at this point there is no Germany as we now know it. It was a series of kingdoms and, and states that at this point were unified. Exactly. And a major demand of the German revolution that would break out is for the unification of the country. But there are many different ways to unify Germany, or at least it was thought that there were many ways. One was to have a federation um, made up of all these different petty kingdoms, but with an emperor at the head, a bit like the Holy Roman Emperor. Empire. Right. So a fairly, uh, you know, a bit more of a, a reactionary solution to this historically progressive problem. Um, others thought that you could have a constitutional monarchy, whereas Marx and Engels deliberately picked the most extreme democratic version of the unification of Germany, which is still a bourgeois democratic task, of course, but by pushing for a centralized unified republic, they didn't actually think, and Marx said, you can't just summon that into being. We're not utopians in, feeling, in thinking that we can establish this immediately. What they were trying to grasp, and the way Marx described it is, the, 
the program is less important than the real course of the movement. Mm. So what they were trying to work out, and throughout this, throughout all these events, you can see them trying to refine their perspective. Where exactly is the revolution going? Where are the different classes in this revolution going? And they saw the highest priority in mobilizing the, the demo, at this point, they're talking about the democratic movement as a whole, but in particular, the working class. They're, they're orientating themselves to the working class from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Mobilizing the, the extreme left of the democratic movement to keep the revolution going, not to be satisfied with the first gains, such as you know, a promise to write a constitution and, and, and such like. So the purpose of this document, it does have a transitional purpose. Transitional in the sense that it's not to be taken just at face value. The key question is, well, who carries it out and how? Right, And if, if the workers and if the, the extreme left of the democracy carried out any one of these demands, it would immediately pose other questions for the movement because it would come up against the opposition of the other classes and reactionary states, therefore driving the revolution forward. They're trying to use the program as a lever to drive the revolution forward to the mm-hmm. extent that they're able. Okay, so Marx and Engels draft this document. They have this proposal to send basically these revolutionary cadres into Germany in order to agitate and prepare for the German Revolution. What happens when these sort of raw, untested revolutionaries enter um, the febrile situation in Germany? Yes, yeah, so when the revolution in, in Austria and Germany does break out in March, so the revolution in Vienna breaks out on the 13th of March, the revolution in Berlin breaks out on the 18th of March, they take quite a similar course to the revolution in, in Paris, but aren't identical. Um, both involve masses of workers piling into the main street, uh, squares, sorry. The, for, the, 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 the authorities trying to disperse them after making some concessions. For instance, the, the king of Prussia um, does actually accept, okay, yes, I'm going to make certain concessions. I will grant a, con- you know, we will write a constitution, thinking that's enough. But then this you know, wily old king decides in fact, he wasn't that old, but anyway, he decides, I've given them a concession. And you see this in revolutionary situations. I've given them a concession. Hopefully, that'll calm them down a bit, and then I'll come in with repression. Right, carrot and the stick. Exactly. We see this many, many times. And so a few days after granting this concession, on the 13th, troops fire upon a demonstration of workers on the 18th of March. As a result, barricades are set up. Again, it's the working class of Berlin, which is smaller than the working class in Paris, but it's the workers of Berlin that do the fighting. And as a result, the king has to back down. He withdraws all his troops out of the city and he accepts all of the demands of the workers, which at this time are not particularly bold. It's He agrees to um, establish a constituent assembly, to work towards the unification of the country under a constitution. And he marches around the city with the, the German tricolor, right. black, so, red and gold. So all bourgeois democratic demands then? Absolutely. The main demands of the workers is right to assembly, um, and to be able to smoke in the tear garden, which was a, a, a park in Berlin. That's the very workers had demand. no idea of the, their own power. Yeah. I want just to give you an anecdote. We can't go into it in too much detail, but after these workers had been killed and the workers had won that battle on the 18th, they take the bodies of some of the people who've been killed straight to the king's palace. Mm. They're met by a doorman or you know whatever, an attendant of the king, who says, the king's still in bed. He can't meet you because he's still asleep. And the workers holding these dead bodies say, well, get him up then. That's not usually the language that they would use to, you know, towards their own sovereign. And he actually comes, he gets out of bed and he comes and, and ex- accepts all their demands. Yeah. And it was precisely that demonstration that said, we want to be able to smoke in the tear garden. So the workers have this enormous power. The state is not confident about using its own armed bodies of men. That's why he withdrew them. Doesn't feel that he can crush them. 
But at the same time, they they don't realize that, uh, I think it's maybe doubtful that the German working class could have taken power uh, immediately at this point, but they had a huge amount of power and a lot of weight in Berlin at that time. So this, this movement breaks out. The Communist League sends about 400 workers, majority of whom are Communist League members, but not all, over into Germany, all over Germany, not into a particular city, but into often they'll go back to their hometowns or wherever they think the, the movement needs them most. They actually receive money from Flusson and the French provisional government in order to aid with this. Um, and when they get there, the entire organization dissolves almost instantly. Oh, right. Um, Stephen Bourne, who was a, a, a leading Communist League activist who was in Berlin working amongst the, wor the workers there, he wrote to Marx saying the, League, the Communist League is in effect as in not he's he's not saying we should dissolve it or it's officially dissolved he's saying in effect it's dissolved it's everywhere and nowhere because all mm. of these individuals you might have one or two individuals who come back home and they just get swept into the existing movement I mean, you can imagine it can't you you've got these earnest young revolutionaries with very little experience sent into the fray of an actual revolution for many of them in their well in their home country and so far as germany was un ununified but their home country and, of course, you'd just be bowled over by events and you'd just disappear in a thousand different directions without a firm apparatus to hold you together. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And it's worth remembering that the Communist League becomes the Communist League mm. only a year before, in fact, less than a year before these events. Right. The Communist Manifesto is only published a couple of weeks, really, before the, the revolution breaks out in Germany. Yeah. So the members of the Communist League we're probably not even fully aware of the program their organization has just adopted. No, I've, I've been to reading groups of the Communist Manifesto for lasted, that lasted for longer than that. <laughs> yeah. So you don't really... This, this, this is not an organization of revolutionary cadres who have all been steeled in the program and ideas that the organization has just adopted. In reality, the cadres of the Communist League are about five or six individuals. Mm. But those five or six individuals, um, the majority of them uh, go to Cologne along with Marx, and they do play a role as a bit more of a unified core, should we say? I don't think it's right to call it an organization. That's a bit grand. But even, you know, leading activists and talented, you know, con communist workers who were dissolved across the entire country were incapable of, you know, proved incapable of building from scratch. And this, I feel like this, this clarifies a term that we use a lot in the movement. We talk about cadre quite a lot. Cadre is a military term, meaning officers that are able to train other officers in order to expand the uh, the army effectively. Mm -hmm. This is what the Communist League set itself the task of doing, but unfortunately the events it was waiting for came too soon. So, for instance, Stephen Bourne ends up in Berlin and he plays quite a big role in the German workers' movement, actually. He, he is instrumental in founding the first national trade union of the German proletariat, which gives an indication of the level of development of the German proletariat at this time. Trade unions had been a very big thing in Britain for decades by this point. Um, so it shows the early stages we're at, but he is so absorbed in founding this trade union, he is not involved in any of the political activity and adopts very few of the political demands that his comrades in Cologne are putting forward. Right. And ends up watering down the program in order to group as many people together. Now, I can understand why he would do that, but what the point I'm trying to make here is it's not... On the one hand, it looks a bit like when the likes of Lenin and Trotsky were scrambling to get back into Russia after the February Revolution. Finally, the revolution's come. We have to intervene. But Lenin, when he embarked at Finland Station, or disembarked at Finland Station, was greeted by a revolutionary organization that had 
built up and educated itself for decades in underground conditions. It was he was able to immediately start carrying out um, revolutionary work and, and eventually turn the organization. Marx, on the other hand, arrives to just a swirl of confusion. Right. And out of that confusion, he is trying to build, I mean, essentially a new organization. The Communist League has essentially ceased to exist from the moment they reached Germany. So Marx eventually follows the 400 or so activists to the Communist League who go to Germany. He arrives to find it effectively defunct. Must have been quite a disappointing setback. Bit of a sobering lesson. How does he respond? So the first task that Marx and his supporters take up is the establishment of a publication, a written organ, around which they hoped to effectively form uh, a revolutionary party in Germany. And that took the form of the Neue Rheinische Zeitung, the New Rhineland Times. You might remember from our last conversation about Marx's life that Marx edited the Rhineland Times back in 1842. So it's, it's quite a nice, I guess, coming full circle. Uh, that, that publication was shut down by the Prussian authorities um, and, and the new one, which had the same fate. But anyway, we'll get to that. And the first problem that they encounter is one of money. That they've come over, they want to found this newspaper that they can use to uh, effectively educate and win a layer of the working class. And at this point, they're not only targeting the working class, actually. They're also trying to win over the most radical section of the democratic movement. And this is one um, lesson, really, that um, is learned in the course of these events that you might, those of, you know, you will certainly remember, and, and those of you listening who've read the Communist Manifesto will probably remember at the end when Marx and Engels start talking about the different um, revolutionary movements, or not even revolutionary movements, the different opposition movements that exist in different countries. They announce from the outset that the revolution is coming in Germany, that it's a bourgeois revolution, and that the communists will fight alongside the bourgeoisie when it acts in a revolutionary way against the old absolutist monarchy. So they go into this movement expecting something a little bit like the great French Revolution, but, and they, they state this explicitly, I don't want to um, do a disservice to Marx and Engels, they say explicitly, the German bourgeois democratic revolution will be taking place in much more advanced conditions than the English or the French revolutions, with a much more advanced proletariat, obviously, than in both of those countries at that time. And therefore, what they said was that the bourgeois revolution in Germany would be the prelude to the immediately following proletarian revolution. They were hoping that the bourgeois revolution would be almost like kind of a, a school for the German proletariat in which it would rapidly form organizations, gain revolutionary con con uh, consciousness, and be, actually be able to struggle directly for power. And this confronts, I think, an important political debate that has echoed through the Marxist movement ever since. I remember at the time, I remember, I wasn't there, but I remember reading about the debates in Russia, for instance, between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. The Menshevik line was that, look at Marx in 1848, at the onset of a bourgeois revolution, he said, this is a bourgeois revolution, the working class is too weak, therefore the workers should support the bourgeoisie effectively. He never actually said that. He said that the workers, and he was always, already, always aiming his propaganda at the workers, the workers should form themselves into an organization, first of all, trade union organizations, and then a political organization, which is really what he means by a class in and for itself, and that they would be forced to fight alongside other classes, such as the bourgeoisie and the petty bourgeoisie, in order to overthrow the last remnants of feudalism. But as soon as that has been done, they would have to fight against their 
former allies. It echoes, not the Menshevik line, but it echoes the position of James Connolly. Right. On the eve of the Easter Rising, when he said, hang on to your rifles, because the same people we're fighting alongside will be fighting if we win. And of course, the Stalinists reheated this old Menshevik line and called it the theory of stages. Exactly. So I, I would say that even before this revolution, when his ideas have only really just been crystallized in the form of the Communist Manifesto, he hasn't lived through the events of 1848. I think you could, you could allow Marx and Engels a certain woolliness in their conception of how the revolution that they haven't participated in yet is going to go. And they haven't had the experience of other revolutionary movements except perhaps Chartism. And yet even then, I would not. it's not fairer to say that they are stages. At no point did Marx and Engels say that it was the task of the proletariat to loyally install the bourgeoisie in power so that the bourgeoisie could carry out progressive reforms on the workers' behalf. They were never that naive. And they always knew that the bourgeoisie in power would immediately try to suppress the workers. Because, I mean, that shouldn't be surprising, really, because that's exactly how capitalist society works. You can't establish a stable bourgeois democratic you know, republic or constitution and monarchy without disarming the workers and, and putting the workers' movement back to bed. Um, and they thought that the opposition coming from the bourgeoisie in its moment of victory would spur the workers on further. If they made a mistake, and I think it's fair to say that their, their perspective was incomplete and you could hardly blame them for that. If they made a mistake is that they thought the bourgeoisie would even be able to achieve that initial victory. And it's that that fails to appear pretty much from the very beginning. I mentioned that the revolution in Berlin, as with all these other revolutions, were carried out by the workers, actually. In Vienna, it was carried out by the workers and students. The working class was, was much smaller than even in Germany at this time. Well, in Berlin, the, the liberals took fright as soon as they saw the workers on the barricades. The liberals had been pushing up against the king, asking for uh, things like a constitution. They were trying, similar to the French bourgeoisie, they were trying to, to win reforms which would enhance their power in society without necessarily having the masses breathing down their necks. As soon as they saw what happened in Paris, and then they saw what happened on the barricades in Berlin, they ran into the arms of the monarchy. Mm. Why? For a very simple and effective reason. The monarchy still retained the army. The Prussian army, very powerful army, they were the armed bodies of men. They were the only force capable of putting the workers down if the workers did rise up against the bourgeoisie. So why on earth would the bourgeoisie willingly dismantle that armed apparatus of repression and the gigantic absolutist bureaucracy, which might not conform exactly to their interests, but why would they dismantle a very powerful instrument that could protect them from the workers and, and, and poor of Germany and Prussia in particular? So from that point, the bourgeoisie and the lib even the liberals become essentially counter-revolutionary. And Marx and Engels actually encounter this in quite a personal fashion. I mentioned they had problems raising money for the paper. Engels went to visit his own dad, and other because his, his dad was a capitalist, a factory owner. And he spoke to his dad and his capitalist friends. And he wrote back to Marx saying, we can't expect a penny out of these people. My old man, he said, uh, there's a direct quote, he said, he'd rather send us a thousand bullets to finish us off than mm -hmm. a thousand talers. That's the attitude of the bourgeoisie towards what we were putting through. So that shows that Marx and Engels thought that there was some kind of scope for collaboration with the bourgeoisie, otherwise they wouldn't have even bothered asking that question. It also shows the weakness of the Communist League inside Germany. It was practically non-existent, that they have to raise funds not from a membership of an organization, which did not exist, but rather from basically selling shares, getting investment, from German bourgeois. But to their credit, I've, many other organizations in the movement have solved the question of finance by making huge concessions politically so that the, you know, the people with the deep pockets will give them the money. 
Marston Engels did not do that. And actually, whenever they did fight, succeed in getting investment, every time they published a new article, um, just eviscerating the, the kind of established Democratic Party, by Democratic Party, I don't mean like, like the Democratic Party in the United States. By party, they mean a bit more of a broad movement. But as soon as they were attacking the, the, the bourgeois liberals and the vacillating, uh, you know, the, the, the radicals, they kept on losing investment. Interesting. <laughs> like basically once what a, a month. What a surprising development. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But they, they chose to maintain their political line uh, over their financial security, um, which I think is a, is a tradition that should be, should be upheld in the movement. Um, so they succeed in establishing, against all odds, they succeed in establishing this new Rhineland Times. And they participate in the foundation of something called the Democratic Association. At the same time, their comrades from the Communist League Joseph Moll, and I think Carl Schapper as well, um, I think Wilhelm Wolf as well from the Communist League, establish something called the Cologne Workers' Association. So the, 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 this core of the Communist League is setting up on the one hand, or, or it's participating, sorry, in the German, so the Cologne Workers' Association, which had been set up by somebody else. And they participate in the foundation of the Democratic Association, which by its very nature was a broader body. It was not simply a proletarian body. It was... It was a mixed bag, should we put it that way? And so Marx and Engels immediately start trying to use the New Rhineland Times in order to shape the program and strategy of this emerging democratic movement. But probably what you've, you might have already picked up on is that their activities were largely confined to Cologne, a single city and not even the biggest in what is quite a large country, which had been separated into 39 separate states. So the range of their influence is limited precisely because of their lack of the organization. So, obviously, as you've said, the workers' movement was comparatively underdeveloped in Germany as compared to places like England. What was the state of the workers' movements when Marx and Engels encountered it? And what was their relation to it? Obviously, they're, they're, they're newcomers to that revolution. They've, they've come in from abroad. Um, there's something of an existing movement. What was their relationship to the workers' movement as it stood? So in terms of the state of the, the workers' movement in Germany at that time, it was in a, a relatively very low level of development compared to France and England, for instance. So I mentioned earlier that the first um, national trade union organization was founded during the revolution itself in 1848. By Stephen Bourne. That's right, yeah. And so prior to that, the German working class, and it still did throughout 1848, it had a guild organization. Um, so the guilds were still a very big and prominent part of working class life in Germany. Whereas they'd been replaced in, in France, they'd been replaced by craft unions. In England, they'd been replaced by not only craft unions, but quite powerful general unions. The, the workers had kind of shed that, that previous form of organization. And the thing about a guild organization, which really is it's a medieval form of organization, there was a class division within the guilds. Between the master and the apprentice. Exactly. And so the work, what a class which was calling itself the working class actually had separate material interests within it. When I talk about the German working class, I do not mean the German working class as it exists today, for instance, or the English working class in the 1840s and 50s, the modern proletariat, as Marx and Engels might put it. A lot of the work, German workers did actually own property. Okay, they didn't own a lot, but they owned their tools. The masters employed the labor of other workers, but they were all in the same organizations. Now, that is a state of affairs that cannot persist in modern conditions. Um, but the economic development of, of Germany and German industry had meant that 
this was still the case at the onset of 1848. So you actually had a split, almost like a 50-50 split in the German labor movement, where one half thought the, the next step for the working class was to form modern, by the standard of the times, trade union organizations. And then another thought, half thought that the task of the working class was to restore the power of the guilds, which really was a, a reactionary position from the standpoint of the development of the working class struggle. So hopefully from this brief sketch, you can see that the situation was not amenable, really, for somebody like Marx and Engels to walk in and just take control of the movement. I mean, I'd be skeptical that any individual could just walk in and take control of the movement. But the kind of demands that Marx and Engels were putting forward um, didn't meet with an immediately ready or, uh, or mass audience in the German proletariat. And what kind of ideas are we talking about? Because you said a lot about democratic demands and political demands, demands relating to the unification of Germany, to political franchise and this sort of thing. But I'm not hearing a lot from Marx and Engels' camp about wages, about the working day, about working conditions, and this sort of thing. Uh, is there a reason for that, this focus on the political rather than the economic side of the demands that the working class were raising at this time? That's right. The, the Neue Rheinische Zeitung doesn't really write about any of the day-to-day -day economic struggles of the German working class at this time. And it, it focuses almost exclusively on the revolutionary I'm going to say political events, although behind these political events, we're talking about social, you know, class struggles. Uh, we're not just talking about an election. We're talking about insurrections and so on. But they focus on the political and on the international more than anything else. And part of the reason for that, I don't think the most important reason, but part of the reason for that is they had comrades from the Communist League active in the Cologne Workers Association, which did focus more on the economic struggle. So there's a certain division of labor. Another part of the question is that they were trying at that time to orientate their demands. I mentioned the list of demands that they wrote up in March. They were actually pitching their demands not only to the most politically advanced section of the working class, but even to a section of the radical democracy, which was made up more of what you describe as petty bourgeois layers, uh, you know, lawyers, teachers, and so on. This is at a time when teachers were more like self-employed, um, self uh, wealthier layers. Of course, teachers have been proletarianized now. Um, so there's an element of, there is a bit of a cross-class front being pursued at the onset of the revolution, uh, which is something we discussed earlier. But also, what I think is clear even from the Communist Manifesto is that Marx and Engels thought it was absolutely necessary for the working class to be able to raise its sights from the day-to-day -day economic struggle, which of course is an essential, inevitable part of the class struggle, and to be able to generalise from that a class struggle um, and draw political conclusions from that. And by political com conclusions, I mean the need for a, stru a struggle to seize power and overthrow the political power of the other class. Remember that, as we mentioned in our previous discussion, Marx had debated with Proudhon on precisely this point. Proudhon mm. said, it's not necessary to take power. If anything, that's uh, uh, an encumbrance. We should just transform the economy using co-ops and then the state will wither away. Marx said there is no social revolution, there is no social struggle without a political struggle. So Marx and Engels were deliberately trying to focus the attention of those workers that they did come into contact with and influence, and eventually they built, again, it was largely limited to Cologne, but they did build a following of thousands, a readership of thousands. All who came into their orbit, they were deliberately trying to take them out of the day-to-day -day struggle and focus on the only thing that mattered at that moment. Bear in mind, this is in a revolution where... Revolution or counter-revolution is going to win in the space of, they don't know, a few months, a few years. And so 
the most important thing is that, and at this point, they're not solely talking about the workers. They're saying the most important thing is that the de democratic movement succeeds in overthrowing absolutism and defeating reaction. And so they're, they're effectively saying to the workers who are coming into their orbit that the achievement of your social aims can only come through the defeat of your class enemy in, in, a, in a, a violent struggle. Marx and Engels at that time foresaw war and civil war. They thought that similar to how in the French Revolution, the old powers intervened militarily and actually out of that military conflict that exacerbated the tensions, the class tensions that existed within France and actually pushed the revolution forward, put the Jacobins in power. They were drawing analogy from that, albeit in different circumstances, to Germany, thinking that Tsarist Russia, which of course was a very reactionary and powerful state at this time, would invade Germany in order to put down the re revolution. And in the, f the fight to defend the German revolution against Tsarist and absolutist reaction, the Democratic Party, that's the, the, the radical petty bourgeois and the workers, would actually have a chance to seize power. That was their perspective at that time. And so they're trying to prepare the workers for that perspective. And I think they were right to do that. I've seen some writers say, ah, oh, that shows that Marx and Engels, they were, they were themselves petty bourgeois Democrats. They didn't care about the working class. Considering what we've discussed in terms of what they, just read the Communist Manifesto, read everything they wrote up to that point. I think Marx and Engels were extremely interested in the proletariat and the, the, the seizure of power by the proletariat particularly in the more developed countries. What they were trying to do is something that I referred to earlier is the point of their program and their demands is actually to establish the real movement of the... Re where is it going? Where is the working class going? What is its interest? And try to use demands as a, as a lever, if you like, to, to focus the minds on the, of the workers on this struggle for power in the real conditions that exist. Not simply saying to the workers, oh, you just need to take power which wouldn't need, mean very much in those circumstances at that time, but rather to say to them, the only, re, the only way that you can fight for the survival of this revolution, even the gains that you've won right now, which isn't much, the only way that you can maintain those is by continuing the fight against reaction and even being prepared to take that fight um, internationally. But within the German workers' movement and within the Cologne Workers' Association in particular, there was an idea that actually the working class shouldn't bother with these parliamentary struggles and these political questions. And that there is an understandable reason why workers might think that is because they were, they were still, in spite of the revolution, they were still largely excluded from the parliaments that were set up as a result of that revolution. So the elections, you know, one of the consequences of the revolution was that the king set up a, a national constituent assembly in Prussia itself, but also set up a, an all-German constituent assembly based in Frankfurt, and the idea was that those, those parliaments would be elected by universal suffrage, male universal suffrage, I should add. But it was indirect. And, so in, and also the application of the franchise was left to the individual petty states. So in some cases, the workers didn't even get the vote. In other places, the workers got the vote, but only they could vote for the real electors. So as a result, both parliaments were completely dominated by the liberal bourgeoisie. You had a, a reactionary wing, the liberal bourgeoisie then had a small radical wing, and I think there was one worker in the whole of the Frankfurt Parliament. So I can understand why German workers would look at that and say, well, that's not got anything to do with us. What we should be doing is focusing on striking and improving our conditions, which I don't think Marx, I can't see any evidence that Marx and Engels did not agree with them doing that. But there was a, I suppose by modern standards, we call it a syndicalist mood, a sectarian mood um, amongst the leadership of the Cologne Workers Association that said, we should ignore the political struggle. We should ignore demands like... We, we don't care. I think one, the, the person who founded the Cologne Workers Association said, I can, I can uh, deal with a red monarchy as much as a red republic. 
That kind of indifference to the political struggle, Marx and Engels saw as a reactionary fetter on the movement. And so actually one of the tasks that this core of Communist League activists took on was winning over the Workers' Association, which took time. But they did eventually do that at a later date. By April 1849, they had actually succeeded in taking over the Cologne Workers' Association. So I should have said at the beginning of this episode that we're recording in June, and the month of June 1848 holds a special historical significance. Could you explain why that is? Yeah, I mean, to put it briefly, June 1848 is the turning point in the entire situation for the whole of the European Revolution, that revolutionary wave. The turning point comes in June. So in February and March, uh, and January if you include the Sicilian Revolution, which you should, you have this wave of revolutions and the, 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 some of the states were overthrown, uh, or should I say the government, so the, the July monarchy in France is overthrown. Other states managed to hang on, but they promise a constitution. In other words, the established ruling class in the state are hanging on for dear life. Um, they are trying to prevaricate, offer as little concessions as they can whilst trying to palliate the masses. As a result, you have phenomena like this provisional government that's been set up in France. This constitutional assembly has been set up for the whole of Germany, promising big things, but not necessarily delivering. However, behind the scenes, the ruling class and the bourgeois state and the absolutist state where you know that's relevant, were preparing the way for the counter-revolution because they've managed to survive. They've managed to cling on. That's all well and good. But you still have bodies of armed workers in these countries. And you also have the expectations of a wide layer of the population aroused by the prospect of German unification or, or you know, social democracy in, in France. And so what you start seeing is a move, uh, confining it to Germany, is a, a move towards reaction. Um, to mention France briefly, the workers had actually succeeded in imposing, uh, imposing quite an important demand, the demand for uh, the right to work. This is something that was directly dictated by armed workers at gunpoint to the new government. What the right to work meant for the workers was that everybody would be entitled to decent, fairly paid work, and that that would require what they call the organization of labor. In other words, elements of a planned economy to guarantee full employment, but decent employment at a decent, honest wage. That is not what they got. The provisional government, of course, was a bourgeois government, which rested on capitalist property relations. And so the national workshops that were set up in order to give the workers what they wanted were things like digging ditches, clearing uh, space in the Champ de Mar in Paris, um, kind of public works projects, but not, not particularly meaningful public work pro uh, projects for a pittance. But also public opinion was moved against the workers because in all the bourgeois press, they were saying that these people are layabouts. They take this money from the taxpayer. For, I mean, again, that kind of tone we see in the bourgeois press all the time to this day. In other words, trying to isolate the workers. Now, in June 1848, uh, June 25th, the workers are, provo are provoked into an uprising. The government, um, first they start to take measures to restrict right of assembly. After, in the immediate aftermath of the revolution, the workers had mass assemblies on the streets. They had the clubs that I mentioned meeting in public buildings. They, they were the main power in Paris at that time. Once the government and the parliament is elected in April, an overwhelming majority is for the so-called moderate Republicans. In other words, not socialists, not social democrats, but mod moderate Republicans. Feeling conf more confident in their position. First, they start to restrict the right of assembly. They start to evict the workers' clubs from public buildings. Um, you have a showdown between the, um, the w a working class demonstration and the National Guard, which demonstrates in this 
minor clash that they actually support the provisional government over the the communists as they saw them and there were communists present um things come to a head where the government finally announces that they will actually be ending the national workshops project and unemployed workers that don't find work in private industry will either be drafted into the army or they'll be sent to public work projects in the Salon uh, swamp not very healthy conditions and in response to that provocation the working class of paris launches an insurrection in which about 50,000 armed men and women um, set up barricades in the eastern, more proletarian quarter of Paris. There's actually a really fascinating um, artifact of this exact moment in history. It's uh, the Guriotype, which is a very early photographic process that shows the barricades on Rue Saint-Marc on the 25th of June, 1848. So you can see the barricades in this very early photograph. It's an amazing moment of history captured for all time. Yeah, and if I'm thinking of the same, the, the right picture, it's a very eerie, haunting picture because from what I can tell, the, the barricade is empty. That's right. This is, this is at the period where the, um, the uprisers have presumably been forced into defeat. Yeah, and Marx and Engels met this event with... They, they recognised it as the, probably the most significant event of the entire revolution. Marx called it the 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 greatest revolution that has ever taken place. The reason for that, because it wasn't successful, the reason for that was it was the first direct confrontation between the proletariat and the capitalist class. It was the first time that the working class had consciously risen, arms in hand, and tried to defeat not just one faction of the bourgeoisie, not just the monarch, but the entire bourgeois state. Because let's remember that the state that the workers rose up against was a state that was elected by universal suffrage. Mm. And actually, the petty bourgeois Democrats, including the Social Democrats, not a single member of Parliament supported the insurrection. Proudhon, who'd been elected to Parliament in June, did not support the insurrection. So a total betrayal, in effect, of the working class by their democratic bourgeois and petty bourgeois allies. Exactly. And the excuse they gave, which is something that we hear to this day, is, well, it had been elected. We started the, uh, the reform paper that we've mentioned a few times. They published an article saying we were revolutionaries before universal suffrage and after universal suffrage in the Republic, we defend that. And the workers rose up against that and therefore the workers were wrong. So they weren't looking at it from a class point of view. Oh, actually, I should correct myself. They were looking at it from a class point of view, but from the point of view of the democratic petty bourgeoisie, mm. not from the standpoint of the working class who would recognize that the continuation of things on this basis, if they recognize the mandate of this elected bourgeois state to crush them, what would that mean for them? Why did they fight for the Republic in the first place? Mm. So they actually drew the conclusion that they need to they needed to overthrow the bourgeois revolution, sorry, the bourgeois republic itself in order to get what they really wanted from the very beginning. In other words, they, they, they were carrying out in practice what, um, well, Marx himself, but also Trotsky would later call the permanent revolution, I would say. So the June days see the massacre of around 10,000 uprisers by the figures i've seen and the deporting of thousands more this must have sent shockwaves throughout europe this terrible defeat of the working class in the country that had been at the very heart of the revolutionary wave of 1848 yeah it, it did absolutely and marx and engels rec recognized at the time that this was the turning point because if it if the workers had won then it would have given a huge impulse to the democratic revolution in other countries. Could the, worker, could the workers have won? I think it's... I mean, as you know, war is the most complicated of all equations. 
And we, what we were talking about is a civil war within Paris. Um, I am prepared to accept that it would be theoretically possible for the workers who have seized power in Paris. I think that the working class was too weak in the rest of the country and the workers' organisations really were confined to Paris at this point. I think it would have had less prospects of success than the Paris Commune, which mm. was also up against it. Right. But I'm prepared to accept that the workers could win that battle, militarily speaking, but then would be isolated. But the point is, if they had succeeded in defeating the bourgeois republic only for a few weeks, like the Paris Commune did, for instance, what impact would that have on the revolutions that were already taking place in Germany, in Italy, and in Hungary? And that's where Marx and Engels saw the real significance. Mm, but a bit of a moot point in some respects because they were defeated and the knock-on effect was precisely the opposite in the reactionary direction. Yes, and Engels pointed out that reactionaries across Europe breathed a sigh of relief because they finally realised the workers could be defeated. The Paris working class, okay, the English working class was objectively the strongest, but it wasn't mobilized as a revolutionary army. So subjectively speaking, in terms of the, you know, the, the political power of the working class, the French working class was the most advanced, the, the one close, the working class closest to actually taking power in June 1848. They lost, you know, we were talking, we were speculating a little bit on whether they could win. The main reason why they lost was because every other class in society fought against them. Right. The, they, the workers were actually a minority of the population in Paris at that time, unlike in 1871. And so the rest of the population was made up either of you know, wealthy bourgeois or of shopkeepers, artisans, relatively poor, also exploited, but not proletarians. The, the, the petty bourgeoisie sided with the bourgeois republic. They feared that if the communists took power, they would eliminate private property, including their own small private property. Mm, so uh, sort of a cross-class coalition of law and order and private property relations. Yeah, so unlike in February, the National Guard didn't come out in favour of the, uh, the revolution. It came out to crush the workers' revolution. Peasants from the countryside walked to Paris in order to fight against the workers because they were afraid of a communist takeover. In other words, what had happened was the vanguard of the proletariat had formed itself into a, an army, basically, a proletarian army capable of fighting for power. But in terms of its relations with the rest of the other classes in society, which formed the majority, it hadn't yet won their leadership. If you contrast that to what happened in Russia, by the time the October insurrection was launched, the, the Bolsheviks were already satisfied that not only had they won, they won the leadership of the vanguard of the proletariat, but through the Soviets, they'd actually won the leadership of the working class as a whole, and not just in St. Petersburg, Pe Petrograd, but also they'd actually won a layer of the peasantry through the soldiers. And so I can't go into detail, but they were launching an insurrection in, under much more favorable conditions. The workers instead were provoked into an insurrection where they could be isolated and crushed. Mm -hmm. And what that meant for the rest was the likes of um, King Frederick William IV in Prussia and the likes of the, um, the Habsburg Emperor in, in Austria. Uh, they look over at this and think, well, if the French can do it, we can do it. Mm. And they become a lot more confident in their, not only their provocations against the workers, but their provocations against those, the same parliaments that they'd brought into being. Um, the, the Prussian king, for instance, um, starts to become a lot more confident in, uh, in asserting itself. Mm. Later on, the Prussian authorities target Marx and Engels themselves. They try to arrest the editorial board of the New Rhenish Times and shut it down. And they succeed in shutting it down. They suppress it for a couple of weeks and then it pops back up again in October. But they actually arrest a couple of leaders. I think Joseph Moll gets arrested. But... Um, the the workers in Cologne, this this demonstrates that Marx and Engels had actually succeeded in gaining a certain layer of support in Cologne because workers actually set up barricades in Cologne when they hear that the authorities are coming to arrest the editorial board. As a result, the authorities back down 
But nonetheless, um, Engels ends up fleeing Cologne um, in order to uh, go to Brussels, I think is where he goes. He eventually gets back into Germany, but temporarily is out. Marx, meanwhile, tries to get the publication of the New Rhineland Times going again. And he succeeds, but a great personal sacrifice because at this stage, all of his, all of the, well, there weren't that many, but all of the investors that they'd managed to pull together at the onset have, have turned tail. They're not interested anymore. Since the, the newspaper has been formally suppressed by the Prussian authorities, it means that it's basically an illegal publication, making its, its publication even more difficult. Marx ends up putting his entire life savings into the continued publication of the New Rhineland Times. Um, he loses everything in that. Which, again, sometimes I read historians who make Marx out to be some kind of um, layabout, really, living off uh, other people's wealth yeah, or living off his own bohemian wealth. moocher. Uh, benefiting from Engels' charity in particular. He's sometimes painted uncharitably by modern historians. Yeah, it's absolute nonsense. He, he, he sacrificed absolutely everything in order to, uh, to continue producing the New Rhineland Times, which by, by the point of its final suppression had a circulation of 6,000. Now, of course, that's not the majority of the people of Germany, but that's, a, that's quite a sizable following in Cologne. Yeah, especially at a time when the majority of people in the country probably weren't even literate. Well, yes, that, that is a fair point. And also, this, this is a paper maintaining a consistent revolutionary line. Um, and he gives everything in order to be able to maintain that line in the hope of actually pulling an organization around. And actually, what starts to happen is after the June events and after the Prussian authorities start to get more aggressive is the, um, the workers' movement becomes more political. In other words... Marx's expectation that in the course of the revolution, the working class would rapidly learn lessons and mobilize itself more and more as a class in and for itself is starting to come true. It's not a finished article at all, but it's starting to come true. And at an assembly in Berlin, the, a, a Congress of Democratic Workers announces that their aim should be the republic. So you can see that the more syndicalist mood is starting to subside to the sense that we need to do something. We actually need to fight to overthrow this monarchy. Otherwise, we'll be left with nothing. That's a step forward for the movement. It's quite a good example of, of the whip of counter-revolution spurring on the movement, politically at least. Um, and this then culminates. So what, what we're seeing is a polarization, essentially, where on the one hand, the bourgeoisie is becoming more and more right-wing and more reactionary because it's huddling with the absolutist monarchy to put the revolution to bed. They're sick of it, effectively. Meanwhile, the, the working class is becoming more politicized and the democratic movement the republic, is becoming more explicitly republican. In other words, that woolly middle ground that w was dominant, this idea of some kind of constitutional federation with an emperor at the head, that's becoming less popular. Um, and this polarization comes to a head in October and November. In October, the, the workers and students of Vienna rise up. They learn that they're to be drafted and, sent, and troops are to be sent to Hungary to put down the revolution. And in solidarity with that revolution, they actually rise up and seize control of Vienna. The Habsburg monarchy has to flee the city. But sadly, the, uh, the city is besieged and taken by the Austrian Empire um, at the very end of the month, on the 31st of, Oct 31st of October, and the workers are crushed. Again, in, in Prussia, the king is watching events and thinking, this is where I want to go as well. So the Prussian authorities say to the, National Assembly, the Prussian National Assembly, and apologies for how complicated this is. So in addition to the all-German Constitutional Assembly, you have a Prussian National Assembly that should have been formed within the Kingdom of Prussia itself. The king and his government informs the assembly 
that it is to be moved to Brandenburg for its own protection, in inverted commas. The Assembly says that it won't go and launches, well, it calls for people to not pay tax to the king's government. Right, basically, it, it, it sort of calls a tax strike, basically. Yeah. In a half-hearted way. The Democratic Association, in which Marx is a leading participant, actually takes them at their word and starts organising in Cologne for the non-payment of taxes. Now, in other words, what, what the National Assembly has done is said, we're the real authority, you can't tell us what to do, and if you won't accept our authority, then you won't get money from taxation. They're effectively saying, we're the state, you're not the state. Now, a situation like that is de facto a civil war when you effectively have two states within the same country. Marx interpreted it as such and put forward that line that actually, in addition to non-payment of taxes, which is a fairly passive form of resistance, that the workers should arm themselves and physically present, uh, prevent the collection of taxes by the authorities. In other words, he is seeing this as a second revolution. And that expression, a second revolution, was being used at this time by Marx and Engels. But the assembly that had called this non-payment of taxes movement didn't take any steps to carry it out. It petered out. Um, and as a result, the, um, in no November, the Prussian king succeeds in carrying out a coup and basically just dissolves this national uh, assembly. Um, meanwhile, in February, for his non-payment of taxes campaign, for advocating the non-payment of taxes in the New, New Rhineish Times, Marx is arrested and put on trial in February of 1849. And here we see his his consistent revolutionary line on show because in the dock when he's defending himself his defense speech was what i did is not illegal if anything what if if the if the um constituent assembly that's been elected calls for the non-payment of taxes then what i'm doing is i am preventing the illegal collection of taxes <laughs> in other words he's saying he's he, he's following the logic here that a new that there are two states which do you pick right effectively and on that basis he was actually acquitted by the jury which again tells you something about the, the public mood that existed at that time that he was able to get away with that. Okay, so Marx has been put on trial and acquitted. Engels, by this point, has fled to Belgium. What happens next? Does Marx remain um, in the country? He does for a little bit longer, yes. So Engels has snuck back into the country in um, early 1849, I think about January, in order to join Marx back in Cologne to get, mm. you know, Get the gang back. To right, so, Engels, so Engels is in the country while Marx is under arrest. Yeah. Right. Um, and then an interesting development is in April of 1849, Marx and his supporters actually split from the Democratic Association. You might remember earlier in the, in the story, Marx participates in the formation of this Democratic Association, which is separate to, but closely linked with the Cologne Workers Association, which formed this broad kind of democratic front effectively. Um, in April of 1849, Marx splits from the Democratic Association, saying that having this mixed class character is no longer practical. He draws the conclusion that having a broad democratic front, including the radical petty bourgeoisie, is a dead end. And that what is necessary is an independent, revolutionary, political organization, a party of only the working class. Now, that, that party of the working class can have temporary alliances and work and fight alongside other classes, that's going to be inevitable at certain points in the struggle if you have a common enemy, but not in the same organ. This is a conclusion he yeah. explicitly draws. And at this time, he is actually elected the president of the Cologne Workers Association. So I mentioned earlier that his, his followers and the Neue Rheinische Zeitung are trying to put forward the need for a political perspective and a revolutionary line for the workers' movement. They succeed in doing that in Cologne. 
And so as a result, um, the Cologne Workers Association effectively becomes a you know, Marxist party. Marx is head of the Cologne Workers Association. But what is the ultimate fate of the New Ireland Times? Tragically, after scoring these successes, and I think, I think it's quite impressive what Marx and Engels succeeded in achieving in that period, um, from almost completely the ground up. But in May of that year, it's important to remember that they're, make, they're taking these steps forward and the workers' movement is becoming increasingly politicised in a period where reaction, absolutist reaction, is in the saddle. Mm. This is the sad contra contradiction of the situation. On the one hand, the consciousness of the workers is rapidly developing and they're forming political organisations and they still possess arms at this point. But the workers have already been defeated in Prussia in the coup in November. They've already been defeated in Vienna. So the main German capitals, they've already been defeated. The Prussian army has been secured in the hands of the absolutist monarchy because the bourgeois liberals do not and are actively supporting Prussian reaction at this stage. So the prospects are not as good as that when they were, uh, as in March 1848, for instance. But the development of the workers' movement is much, much better. Mm. So as a result, what we see is Marx takes this step of placing himself or, or being elected at the head of this um, workers' organization of thousands of members, albeit confined largely to Cologne. But only a month later, in May, the New Rhineland Times is forcibly shut down for good. Um, and it's not long after that that Marx and Engels have to leave as a result of uh, the Prussians sending troops. And where do they go? Engels goes to South Germany because at this stage, at the same time that this is happening, um, if you like, the last gasp of the revolution breaks out. I mentioned the, um, the Constitutional Assembly in the all-German Constitutional Assembly in Frankfurt, this castle in the sky. All this time that this has been going on, this revolution and counter-revolution, they've been working very hard at drafting a constitution for the whole of Germany. And they decide that this new German federation or confederation of different states should be headed by an empire. They decide it shouldn't be the Habsburg Emperor of Austria because he's literally just crushed his revolution. And so they decide a good candidate for the job will be King Frederick William IV of Prussia, who's also just crushed his own revolution. So they write to him and they say, here's the constitution we've written for you. We'd like you to be the emperor of a, 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 a unified Germany with us as the parliament. And he says, I'll think about it. He doesn't initially <laughs> reject, but he says, I'll consider it, but it has to be accepted by the already existing states. So all of these petty kings, these sort of semi-feudal kingdoms, that the whole revolution was, you know, it broke out in order to overthrow. They are now being given a veto over whether Germany is unified under the leadership of a reactionary king. That's what this experiment really has come to. Um, and that the logic of that is grasped by the assembly. The conservatives, the reactionaries, leave the assembly, which means the majority is now held by the more radical faction. And the more radical factions say that this is a disgrace and that it's us or them. They effectively declare civil war. They declare war against the, um, the, the Prussian state. Meanwhile, in all of the smaller kingdoms and states in Germany, places like Dresden, places like Bavaria, there are uprisings where the masses arm themselves and actually kick out the various kings or dukes and establish their own popular provisional governments. In other words, you have this big resurgence of the revolution, but in the more kind of the smaller, less important kingdoms of Germany, because in the most important, it's already been crushed. Engels actually goes to Bavaria and fights, literally fights, 
in one of the revolutionary armies. Or fights arms to hand. Yeah. Uh, he, he participates well, they do in call the insurrection. Him, they do call him the general, don't they? Yeah, so he, you know, he, 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 got, a, he got a taste of, of, of armed service, for want of a better word. He got a taste of armed revolution in that period. Uh, obviously, he wasn't just going as a, as a tourist or as a writer. He did write from the front, but he was going in order to, to try to ensure the success of the revolution. Something I should say as an aside is it's easy, in the benefit of hindsight, to say this was a last gasp. I only know that because of what happened subsequently. Marx and Engels didn't necessarily think that. Marx and Engels um, had also witnessed in France, or they'd followed in France, sorry, the rise of the mountain. The mountain was a social democratic, and it explicitly called itself Social Democratic Political Party, which was formed out of the radical petty bourgeois Democrats in Parliament and the workers' organisations that had been driven underground after the suppression of the June Revolution. They joined together in a single political party which started winning seats in elections. They didn't win a majority, but they were getting a larger and larger minority of the parliament. Marx and Engels thought that that was a very encouraging development, and they actually expected a second revolution in France, and they even said the workers could take power. They were hoping that this social democratic party would be a revolutionary workers' party capable of taking power. At the same time, you have uprisings and civil war in Germany, and at the same time, um, outbreaks in, um, in, in other parts of Europe, although many of them had been suppressed by then. They thought this could relight the whole conflagration in Europe all over again. So they were optimistic. Marx um, went to Paris um, where, the, okay, the, the counter-revolution was in the saddle at this time, but it was still, Marx could still go there. Yeah, it wasn't sitting entirely comfortably, perhaps. Exactly. Precisely because, the, you know, the, 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 um, the Social Democratic Party was making gains. Um, but in June 1849 not long after Marx arrives, I think, there is a botched attempt at an insurrection by the Social Democratic Party. I can't go into the details, but the long and short of it is that the French army bombards the Roman Republic who had evicted the Pope. So this mm. is one of these sister republics that rise up. Um, the response of the Social Democrats is to condemn the president, condemn the government for attacking a fellow republic, which is actually against the Constitution. There's a clause in the Constitution that says you can't do that. They've tried to indict, the pre they try to impeach the president they fail, the majority votes against them. They then say, well, we'll defend the constitution force uh, arms in hand. And they all walk out the parliament building and then arrange an unarmed demonstration where National Guardsmen are encouraged to not bring their weapons, but march in uniform in order to basically hand a petition over to the government. They are met by the fully armed armed forces and dispersed by force. And when they suddenly realize they've come under attack, the people at this protest, this demonstration start shouting to arms, to arms. And so they rush to their arms depots, which had already been seized by the military. In other words, the leadership of the working class, which was a petty bourgeois social democratic leadership, had completely botched. They'd taken quite a strong position and completely botched it. Um, it's worth also mentioning that many of the workers of Paris didn't actually come out even for that demonstration because of the defeat in June. So you've had this... Um abortive attempt by the Social Democrats to take power. What does that mean for Marx? Unfortunately, it means that the environment becomes even less hospitable for him. Um, in the summer of 1849, so after the defeat of the Social Democracy, Marx is informed that he is to be evicted from Paris, not necessarily evicted from the country, but evicted to uh, a part of Brittany that he certainly considered would be the death of him. He said it was uh, you know, swamp... Uh, 
I think he thought they were very unhealthy conditions, it would also completely isolate him from political activity. So later on, in, eventually in September, he and his whole family cross over the channel to London um, as, as refugees, effectively, penniless refugees, having given everything to the revolution struggle in Germany. Engels, later on, arrives in London. He has had to escape um, the, uh, the, the, the conflict in Germany. The revolutionary insurrectionary armies are isolated and defeated. You've got to remember that these uprisings are isolated in these various different petty kingdoms. There is no generalized struggle. And Marx, crit uh, not Marx, Engels criticizes this, um, this constitution assembly, which effectively declares this war and then takes no steps whatsoever to pursue it. It leaves everything up to the individual cities that rose up. And so as a result, they can be easily isolated by the Prussian army and eventually just wiped out. So in the course of that, in the course of that defeat, um, Joseph Moll is actually killed in battle. Engels uh, escapes over the border to Switzerland and eventually makes it over to London. And so that core of Communist League activists that I mentioned at the beginning, minus Moll, who had sadly been killed, um, reconvene in London uh, to try and basically um, build anew. And I feel that we've covered a huge amount of ground here. I mean, we've covered the, the rise and fall of many revolutions across Europe. We followed Marx and Engels from Belgium to Paris to Cologne and back to Paris and now to London where Marx will remain for the rest of his life. And the London years for Marx warrant an episode of their own, frankly, yeah. because so much is done, so much is written and so much happens in terms of the eventual developments of what was to become the first international, the International Workingmen's Association. But just to bring this discussion, this really interesting discussion, I know it's been a long episode, but I hope that our listeners will appreciate that it's a very complicated story with a lot of moving parts, and I think it's just a fascinating and rich period in Marx's life and in revolutionary history. What would you say, Josh, were the main lessons that Marx accrued from the experience of the revolutionary wave and crash of that wave in 1848 and 1849? And what are the lessons for us today? Because obviously Marx adapted some of what he learned into his ideas, so they became part of what we now call Marxism. They became part of the program we inherit. Um, but obviously, um, with the benefit of hindsight, we, we, we have arguably an even wider view than Marx did. And we know what comes next. We know that the, the Paris Commune is going to come eventually. We know that the Russian Revolution will come at the turn of the century. So what were the lessons for Marx and what are the lessons for us? Well, the, the lesson that Marx had already drawn in 1848 was that the so-called liberal bourgeoisie was utterly incapable of carrying out its own revolution, in inverted commas, that it had ceased to play any kind of revolutionary role in contrast to the bourgeoisie of, say, you know, the great French Revolution, uh, the English Revolution. And the reason for that was precisely because of the presence of the proletariat. In those conditions, the bourgeoisie placed itself at the head of the masses, particularly the peasantry, promised some reforms for them and, and effectively accrued most of the benefits to itself. It was not able to do that in 1848 because behind it stood not a class of small property owners who hoped to gain from the same movement, but a class of propertyless workers who actually threatened to overthrow their entire system if they let them get too close to power. As a result, the bourgeoisie became completely counter-revolutionary politically, even if it was still able to play a certain progressive role economically. Engels actually said that 
the German liberal bourgeoisie had proven itself so cowardly and so weak that liberal, i.e. direct political rule in Germany, would be ruled out forever. What he meant by that was that actually the overthrow of, um, of absolutism and the, the, the Prussian Junkers would be by the working class. And I would say actually he was, he was proven right by that because yes. the, the Junker regime continued to exist right up to the First World War. And in the end, the Weimar Republic was established by the working class. Yes. So they ruled out the possibility of the bourgeoisie carrying out any kind of you know, revolutionary role in society. They also drew the conclusion, based on their experience of the social democracy in France and the, the revolutionary uprisings and the role of the radical Democrats, the democratic petty bourgeoisie in Germany, they drew the conclusion that the, the radical petty bourgeoisie was also incapable of leading the revolutionary movement. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that it was the radical petty bourgeoisie that led the most progressive phase of the French Revolution. The Jacobins were not workers. The, the modern proletariat did not exist at that time. And so it would have been reasonable to exist that there existed some kind of, uh, sorry, reasonable to believe that there existed some kind of reserve of uh, revolutionary action amongst the petty bourgeoisie. What they'd seen is that, again, confronted with the prospect of a propertyless class of workers coming to power, the petty bourgeoisie would at best vacillate and not know how to carry the revolution through against, you know, the, in the teeth of reaction. But at worst, they would consciously betray, like they did in June. So Marx and Engels, in March of 1850, draft an address to the Communist League. They took the decision, along with uh, the other refugees in London, to refound the Communist League, because at that time, they believed that a new revolutionary wave was coming. They had not given up hope. And again, I can understand, again, with the benefit of hindsight, we can say that the revolution had, it had been defeated by that point. But when you're living through it, it's similar to the Bolsheviks after the defeat of the 1905 revolution. When do you call it quits? So they were hoping for a revolutionary upsurge. And so they reformed the Communist League, but on a higher level, if you like, politically. And um, Marx and Engels drafted this address, which I think is one of the most amazing documents in the Marxist arsenal. I totally agree, and I will link it in the description of this episode. Everyone should give it a read. It's amazing not only how valuable and prescient it is for revolutionary activity to this day, but also how it smashes to pieces. I would say in particular the Stalinist mischaracterization of Marx's ideas, because it completely accords with Trotsky's perspective on the permanent revolution. And in fact, this is where, this is, this is precisely the text, precisely the address, where Trotsky obtains the expression, the permanent revolution. Exactly, exactly right. Um, it's very interesting because it's written from the perspective of a revolutionary party hoping for a new resurgence in the next couple of years, really. And it's saying in the next revolution, they've already written off the liberal bourgeoisie, in the next revolution, the German working class is too small, it's too weak to just take power directly, immediately. It's inevitable that the broad revolutionary movement will place the petty bourgeois democracy at its head, which is essentially what happened in France. Under those circumstances, what do you do? Well, the first question they ask is, well, when the revolution has been defeated, and so the petty bourgeois, be Democrat, petty bourgeois Democrats are not in power, what position do you take in relation to them? And that has a huge amount of significance for particularly the national struggle and liberation struggles throughout the 20th century and today, actually. Um, where you have a, a defeated or oppressed petty bourgeois democratic party or movement, Marx says it's natural that when they themselves feel oppressed, the petty bourgeoisie will reach out to the workers with socialist phrases. 
and they will want to form some broad opposition party that unites both the classes. And he said that would be entirely to their benefit and to the disadvantage of the working class. He says explicitly, do not f join up in the same organization, you know, bound by the discipline of a petty bourgeois leadership. Because what that will do is it will confine the socialist aims of the workers to you know, the, the democratic and republican aims of the Democrats. The Democrats have no interest, by which I mean the petty bourgeoisie, have no interest in overthrowing capitalist society. They just want to reform it for their own benefit. And so it's absolutely necessary that the workers can fight alongside the petty bourgeois democracy. In fact, it's inevitable. In a, in a broad social revolution, which involves many different classes, it's inevitable they will fight alongside themselves. But actually, the workers must have their own independent organisation, not simply trade unions, but its own political organisation, a party, and the moment that absolute, so talking about Germany, the moment that absolutism is overthrown and the petty bourgeois Democrats are brought to power as a, form, you know, a provisional government, for instance, like what we saw in France, the role of the working class and the working class party should be, first of all, to retain their arms and to resist any attempt to disarm the working class and end the revolution. They should, by force, if necessary, push the, uh, the, the petty bourgeoisie to actually go beyond its own demands, basically threatening. Sim Again, he's drawing from France here, similar to how the workers basically forced the, the, the provisional government to institute national workshops. And they should maintain their own, and this is I find absolutely fascinating, they should maintain their own work embryos of workers' government in the form of assemblies, clubs, in other words, workers' assemblies on the ground that constantly monitor and expose the petty bourgeois government with the aim of eventually overthrowing it. And it says the workers' battle cry should be permanent revolution or revolution in permanence, depending on how you want to translate it. Now, the thing that I find so incredible about that is that that is essentially the program that was followed by the Bolsheviks, certainly after Lenin's turn in April. That is the follow program that the Bolsheviks applied pretty much to the letter in relation to the provisional government, which led to the victory of the, uh, the, the proletariat in October 1917. Mm -hmm. Marx here has clearly, he's grasped something much deeper than perspectives for the German revolution. Um, he has actually, I would say he has grasped the logic, the dialectic of, of the modern revolution itself. Mm -hmm. In any revolution, you're going to have lots of classes thrown into the cauldron. Lenin said, anyone who wants to see a pure social revolution will never see it. It's quite likely that when the workers aren't, in, you know, they, they, you don't have a mass a working class that explicitly is calling for the seizure of power at the very beginning. That You don't tend to see that. I can't think of a revolution where you, you see that immediately. You most likely see some kind of prevaricating provisional government come to play. And I'm, I'm thinking right now of the situation in Sudan, which we can't go into, but that is a mass revolution in which the workers clearly participated and led the charge. But which we might well in this uh, podcast series. Yeah, absolutely. And we should. We absolutely should. But to, to cut to the chase, what Marx is grasping here is that this broad revolutionary movement where millions of people who've never been involved in politics get thrown into the, you know, the cauldron of events, there's going to be a certain amount of naivety. And, and it's likely that some form of, you know, what should I say, like a, a, yeah, a petty bourgeois formation representing all the weak sides of the revolution movement will probably be thrust into power. And Marx is saying explicitly that the working class should be defending itself, its own organizations, and consciously fighting to expose and undermine that provisional government, not loyally help install a bourgeois democratic republic, that they should be trying consciously to undermine that government and eventually overthrow it using organs of working class power in the form 
of workers' assemblies, clubs drawing from France, or to use the Russian term, Soviets. And having done so, Marx envisaged that the workers wouldn't simply set up a government like we might imagine a you know a social democratic government maintaining capitalism but carrying out reforms. Marx envisaged that these organs of working class power, having overthrown the petty bourgeois democracy in the course of this revolution, they would establish what he called the dictatorship of the proletariat, a class dictatorship. Again, drawing from his experience of 1848, he'd seen lots of different kinds of government, kinds of state come to power in the course of those years. He'd seen constitutional monarchies, semi-feudal monarchies, bourgeois republics, all of them had ultimately been, and he drew this conclusion explicitly, they'd all ultimately been the direct dictatorship of one class over the other. And so he saw the outcome of the revolutionary process, if the workers took power, as being the establishment of the dictatorship of the proletariat, as a means of transforming society along communist lines. And that, I would say, is the point at which we can really see the complete Marxist political program, which was refined and developed in the decades following. But I would say all of the fundamental principles of the political program of Marxism were drawn out um, at this stage. Well, Josh, thank you so much. Um, I've learned a huge amount today. I'm sure that all of our listeners have as well. Once more, I'm going to put the links to the prequel to this episode in the episode description, along with this address by Marx to the Communist League in 1850, which is so full of amazing insights and lessons. Josh, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. That was International Marxist Radio. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again same time next week for more Marxist news, theory and analysis. And if you've been inspired by what you've heard today, get in touch via our website, marxist.com, and find out more about how you can join the international Marxist tendency and fight for revolution where you are.